I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. It is post-game edition number 11 here in 2023. Daniel Gallen alongside me. This is Tyler Donahue. We are fresh out of Beaver Stadium it is early evening, mid-evening, I suppose now, and not too bad to be recording an episode. It was another noon kickoff, uh, Rutgers and Penn State, and the Nittany Lions ultimately prevailed 21-point spread, 27-6. Uh, to 6. A lot more involved to it uh, than that final score, though, Daniel Gallen. Along the way, Drew Aller suffers an apparent injury. We're going to get to that situation in a bit. Bill Perbula comes in, ends up leading the team in rushing yards with 71 of those, and the ground game at large produces their best performance by the game's end of Big Ten play this season, 234 yards on the ground in a 27-6 to win. The defense certainly got the job done. Three takeaways leading to 17 points for Penn State on another uh, you know, interesting day, uh, a, a journey, you could say, for the offense. Daniel, uh, Penn State improves to 9-2, and two, and they got it, they got it done in, in a different fashion than any of us anticipated it might look in, in, this, in this particular Saturday. Certainly. Um, you, you think about what, like, I don't know, two months ago, we were here after the West Virginia game, our first game in Beaver Stadium, kind of what we thought, our expectations uh, for the season after that game. And today it was our final time in Beaver Stadium and kind of how our expectations have changed with reality and um, some of the reality on the field with what we saw happen to, to Drew Aller today, uh, what we saw from Bo Perbula, how we saw this offense uh, really work uh, through through the latter part of the game. Um, but I think that you look at it and I'm sure that when we get in there on uh, on Monday, uh, James Franklin is going to be sure to point out that 
winning is tough to do in college football. He's going to mention some some losses uh, that have already happened today and a couple that could uh, also be in the works. And he's going to say they're really happy to be in the position that they are in. You know, nine and two now, the chance to win 10, se- 10 games and back-to-back seasons, put themselves in position for a New Year's Six Bowl uh, when we go out to Detroit next week. So I think that how Penn State has done this <laughs> over these past couple of weeks, definitely not how we thought they would, but the results are kind of, you know, in terms of win-loss, wouldn't be a surprise if you told us uh, a couple months ago that we'd be here at nine and two. Yeah, nine and two is is uh, precisely uh, you know kind of underneath where we were though I should say I shouldn't say it's where we thought we all had them going eleven and one so I don't want to change expectations now that we're to this point um, but yeah nine and two is kind of where you've been accustomed to seeing them come out of the Rutgers game at this point in the season and this was quite honestly just the same old script that we've seen in this series going back the last eight, nine years since that one that was pretty thrilling. The first time that Rutgers poked its head in the Big Ten, it was the first time that James Franklin coached in a conference matchup in Piscataway back in 2014, uh, 13 to 10, went down to the wire. Since then, Penn State's margin of victory has been 13 plus points. That was the case here. Every single year, we went over some of those halftime scores uh, on the pregame podcast, especially in Beaver Stadium. It's a one-score deficit at halftime. Maybe it's a three-point lead or a four-point lead. Today it was 10-6, to and Rutgers got the ball first to open the second half. So kind of right where we thought it would be. Daniel, you actually said that Rutgers would be leading late in the first half when you were predicting this matchup. You said it would be tied 10-10 at halftime. You were pretty damn close. Uh, Rutgers was able to, to, to drive late in that first half. Um, you know, I, I think this is probably the most legitimate for a certain stretch of this game, pass attack that that Rutgers had put on display at any point against Penn State in this series, uh, as far as I can remember, because uh, Gavin Wimsat on that particular field goal drive at the end of the half goes th- three pass completions that go 15 plus yards each, and you're wondering, okay, is this quarterback finding something all of a sudden in Beaver Stadium? And and you're going in halftime, and your quarterback hasn't found what he's looking for. Um, but ultimately, the second half proves to be again by the script against Rutgers. 17 to nothing unanswered points the rest of the way. Uh, the defense stifles Rutgers. They get their takeaways. Uh, Rutgers fails to execute in Penn State territory. A couple of opportunities there. And so while the final score and the process to get there was very familiar for us, Daniel, and one that we anticipated. We each said 20-point deficit. We said 30 to 10, each of us. Um, and we said it's going to meander through the first half, and then you're going to see Penn State pull away. We think we both predicted that the ground game would find find its form in the second half and really grind down Rutgers. All that happened. But, man, the cast of characters were different this time, and, and their journeys were very unique. And we got to start with the starting quarterback, and Drew Aller, who did not finish this game involved, he was sidelined in the third quarter. Uh, again, being more uh, involved as a runner in this matchup, it's something that we've seen pop up uh, the last few weeks of, of him being, uh, by necessity it would seem, involved more in that way. And uh, he did not; he was not able to kind of find the ground fast enough. He had a defender pop him, and on one play later, he kind of sends a ball, airmails to the staff, and they're like, "Okay, let's get." Uh, everyone kind of knows. I think Drew knows before that ball's even hits the hits the ground that he's he's working his way to the sideline. Goes straight to the medical tent. I noted on the way there, Devon Ellis, who's kind of the heartbeat it feels like of this team in a lot of ways right now, embraced him, um, had some words, exchanged them in his ear, and, and then Drew Aller just made his way to the medical tent. He resurfaced a little while later, had his helmet in his hand. 
never came back. And, and, and we were keeping eyes on him. Daniel, what did you see from Drew Aller? Let's start there through the process I just described and for the remainder of the day. And I'll just put this out there in terms of details here. James Franklin, not going to get into them, uh, but he did say he didn't consider this to be a significant injury. And, and by that, I think you would mean you know, something that's going to end the remainder of his season. But James Franklin also cautioned us and himself in some ways and saying it's still very early and, and we're gathering information. So I, he didn't want to get ahead and say something. But I guess it's good that he's right off the bat not saying, hey, guys, this, this doesn't look good. And and he was on the sideline for the remainder of the matchup. Before we get to Bo Perbula and Drew Aller's performance before that injury, what do you make of that sequence in the third quarter? It, it was a really interesting sequence when you you put everything back to back to back, especially in the moment. Uh, I mean, Drew Aller did take a, a really big hit. I believe it was Flip Dixon, defensive back from Rutgers, <clears throat> really popped him. And there's been a couple times this year where Drew Aller has taken hits, and in the press box, there's kind of a, a like an ooh, uh, because you know oh, he's yeah. he's the quarterback and he's someone where you know that's not really part of his game. Um, or at least it wasn't really billed as part of his game. Um, so you see that happen, and I thought he got back up. You know, it didn't necessarily seem like anything was amiss immediately. Um, and then he gets back there, and as soon as the ball, the snap gets to him, I mean, he just – I mean, it was a very awkward throw to get it out. It was almost like he just sort of pushed it um, over, over the head of the receiver out there, and he immediately walks off. Drew – or Bo Perbula jogs on. Um Aller goes into the medical tent, was in there for, for quite a while. Um, I, I know yeah, that I think I timed it at about five, six minutes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that, that's enough where you're like, there's some serious, you know, you know, evaluation happening right now. It's a, it's a span of time where when you just say five or six minutes, it doesn't feel like a long time, but in the moment when there's another clock that's ticking down and there's stuff happening, it does feel like a long time. Um, and then he came out and he just sort of, spent a lot of time flexing his right hand, moving his right arm, um, you know, touching his shoulder, kind of feeling that out there. Um, he went, you know, he eventually put on the beanie um, and and looked pretty dejected and, and was off to the side a little bit, I felt, but I, I thought, but I felt as the, as the half went on, um, he got a little bit more and more involved. And I, I think I was looking through the binoculars at one point during a timeout and he and Danny O'Brien, the the GA who's working with the quarterbacks right now, um, they were having a discussion and, and O'Brien was gesturing to something on the field and they were having a little back and forth about something. So Aller was engaged, uh, talked to some of the the players and they said that uh, like Theo Johnson and Olu Fashionu, they said that they went over to him on the sideline and told him that they had him, that whatever he was going through, they had his back, not to worry about it. James Franklin said that, as the game went on that he thought that drew had really, really good leadership. Um, so it, it's definitely going to be something to monitor. I mean, you, you looked at the the pain that he seemed to be in uh, when he came out of the tent and was you know, moving, moving his arm, trying to flex it. It looked like he was trying to kind of gauge his mobility. Um, yeah, it was something that didn't look super, it didn't look good, but at the same time, like you mentioned, he stayed in uniform the whole time, um, and then you know he was out there the whole time. With some of these injuries, they take guys in, you never see them again, or they take them in, they come out in street clothes, something along those lines. So um, I'm curious to see what James Franklin has to say when we get the chance to talk to him next week about 
what what exactly is going on with Aller and, and where he is health wise. Next week comes fast because we get James at <laughs> noon on Monday, and and that's certainly going to be a topic of discussion. And uh, before that injury, uh, Drew Aller on the day six of thirteen passing. Uh, I guess that that lasting completion was post injury, and and it kind of reminded me, by the way, of when you see maybe a a pitcher um, just say, "Oh, something's wrong with my elbow." Like something they note something strange right after one of those throws that just goes like two feet wide of, of the glove. And you're like, okay, that was strange. That what that's what that felt like. It was like, okay, something mechanically it, that he usually can depend on or physically, I guess you should say it is not working at, in order. And and so Drew was almost surprised that it, it seemed like as a result of that throw. Um, but, but getting back to his day before that uh, six of 12, 79 yards passing, um, he did make some plays with his, his legs, and that's something we actually saw him go for a career-high yardage on the ground against Michigan after he went for a career-high yardage on the ground against Maryland. I don't know if that's necessarily a trend that you want brewing for, for Drew Aller right now, but the passing numbers, uh, Daniel, overall this team has gone sub-100 yards passing in back-to-back games. They did it differently to get to the finish line. I don't want to shortchange how they did it. I mean, Michigan – did it a little bit in similar fashion against them last year coming here and, and didn't make J.J. McCarthy throw a pass. Uh, but then they did it with Catron Allen. Nick Singleton got involved late. We'll talk about those things. And Bo Prabula, of course. But before that, uh, it was just, uh, again, just jointed from the passing game perspective. Um, those numbers are not pretty. We, from the receiver perspective, a lot of guys were involved. You were counting seven different receivers on the first two series. Uh, for Penn State. And by the time we got through two series, we were like halfway through the second quarter because these drives (laughs) were long early on. Um, But you had two receivers catch passes in this game. Each of them actually caught one pass. And naturally, it was Omari Evans, one catch (laughs) for 25 yards. And then, of course, Liam Clifford, who I think had played maybe a dozen snaps cumulatively the last few weeks at wide receiver, one catch for 15 yards. That was it at receiver. Uh, And and really for Drew Aller, it just you didn't see that comfort level really rise up. And I know it's a very uncomfortable week, and we kind of laid out why that was the case when you lose your offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach and you're tasking your tight ends coach and your running back's coach with with being the guys at the forefront there and James Franklin and Danny O'Brien taking on bigger roles. There's a lot in the plate. You get a win here. Unfortunately, you also get an injury with Drew Aller. But the performance was not confidence-inducing. And we talked about how important it is for Drew Aller and him and everything he's going to do here down the stretch. And and we got to kind of put an asterisk now because there's an injury that we have to monitor, but you want it to be confidence inducing to, to take you into the December bowl preparation on a high note to take you into this off season where nationally, but here locally and internally that you feel like quarterback is an obvious strength for the Nittany Lions going into 2024. You don't want to be questioning that logic at all. And unfortunately, of late, aside from that Maryland matchup on the road where we really put it together and he was all smiles, uh, we just have not seen it come together. And it's pretty much at this point uh, about a half season sample size we're going to be working with when it comes to the sophomore quarterback. Definitely. I, I think one thing that kind of stood out to me as we were watching this was that it looked the same as what we've been seeing for, for much of the year. And I know that like personally, I wasn't expecting the the structure of the offense to look that much different. You, know, you fire Mike Yersich, but you're not going to install the triple option. You're not going to install the air raid. You know, you're not going to, you know, completely overhaul it uh, over the course of the week. It's still going to be the same system. And I think that we did see some some wrinkles in there in terms of the personnel that got involved. 
I think we saw a couple different formations um, at, at different times that, that I thought were interesting. Um, so I think from that perspective, it was kind of like, yeah, I mean, this offense structurally has not been able to do much um, at times this year, struggled to do a lot. So going up against a solid defense like Rutgers, that wasn't the biggest surprise, but I, I think I do think it was a little disappointing to see sort of the the same Drew Aller. Um, he got let down on that opening possession where he rifles the ball across the middle and it goes through Dante Cephas's hands oh. and then somehow finds Tyler yeah. Warren's hands uh, and neither of them can hang on to it. Um, I, I thought that that was a you know pretty kind of indicative uh, of how this offense has run this year. You saw another play uh, where it was down near the goal line where, where Cephas, I think Aller was maybe expecting him to break further out than he did. So it was a ball that was just kind of thrown to nowhere uh, on the right side. And Cephas was in the area. And there was that, also a throw to Cephas that Cephas was clearly interfered with from our vantage point. I mean, at least you could have, oh, yeah. you, there was a strong case where if, if that doesn't happen, maybe that changes the way we view Drew Aller's day and, and how what happens at the goal line there. They came up short. They, they said it settled for a field goal. It was a disappointing result. And, and I think that was a missed call. But at the end of the day, you're right. It wasn't like we saw a a, a kind of a reinvigorated Drew Aller. I, I, I don't want to put where his mental mindset is. I'm just saying what we're seeing between those six seconds when the whistles blow, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a step forward for the sophomore. Yeah, I was I was talking about the the sequence where Penn State was pinned back. I forgot about the the oh Cephas, that one. Yes, uh, that was that may have the been the worst DPI. possession of the season. I mean that may that may yeah. have been the ugliest possession that didn't result in a turnover for them of the season. Yeah, because you you miss Cephas on the out, and then on third down, it was kind of that weird non-committal half throw that Aller did to to Cephas when he was running. Uh, over the middle, you know, way short of the sticks to begin with. Um, and that fell incomplete. So uh, I, I think that you, you just keep seeing, you keep seeing those same mistakes. And I do think that those are the types of mistakes that you don't solve those by firing the offensive coordinator, that those are things that the the players need to figure out. Um, and maybe you need to spend the off season you know, working on that. I mean, it, it just kind of popped into my head while you were talking about um, what's coming up for Penn state. And you mentioned bowl prep and if Aller isn't healthy and can't necessarily you know, do bowl prep, that's something that could be a, a potential setback a little bit moving forward. When you talk about getting as much practice time as you can get, because you know, from what, <laughs> from what we understand, they need to get on the same page. A lot of people need to figure a lot of things out. And if you, you get those 15 extra practices or however many it is in, in December, that can be pretty big for, for certain players. So um, we got to get through, <laughs> we got to get through next week first, see where everything is health wise overall. Um, but it was just kind of like, I wasn't expecting to see something totally different. I thought maybe we would see a little bit of a reinvigorated offense Maybe a maybe a little bit of a freer, a little bit more loose Drew Aller. Um, maybe if he hits on that throw to Tyler Warren, touchdown pass to Dante Cephas, where Cephas got got grabbed pretty early. Maybe that sets things up a little differently. But the fact is, it didn't happen, and we got more of the same Drew Aller that we've seen, uh, you know, recently. 
I think we'll have a lot more to talk about Drew Aller on Monday. Um, we can kind of put a pin in it for for now because it, it's it's the prevalent topic right now, not just for for how you want to see this team finish 2023, but how you realistically view what they can accomplish in 2024 when you open to a 12-team playoff, but you also bring into the Big Ten, Oregon, UCLA, USC, and Washington. So there's a big trade-off with those two things. And, and, and so let's get to the to the situation here, just passing game overall. Um, this is games where Drew Aller's out in the fourth quarter. It's the way this approach the, the fourth quarter. That plays into it here. But overall, this team... You go back to game one, 332 yards through the air. Uh, 300 plus of those accounted by the wide receiver room alone. That was game one, our first view of what the Drew Aller-led offense might look like under Mike Yersich. They have fallen below 250 total passing yards as an offense in their next 10 games. And they have fallen below 100 passing yards in the last two games. And you just don't know where Drew Aller is and you don't know – medically and physically what kind of ground he might need to make up between now and what's going to be a short week a Friday night kickoff in Detroit what goes into that what are the risk rewards of, of getting him on the field Friday against Michigan State in a game where if you handle your business offensively even if you approach it in a similar fashion that to the second half today may not be ugly but against Michigan State this year probably gets the job done probably gets you to 10 wins and that you just wonder if this is the if the curtain goes down on Drew Aller's regular season here. You know, the conversation is just so different in December for a 10 win team uh, about the quarterback position. And I'll just remind us and I'll keep hammering it home over all of our heads for a quarterback who has 25 total touchdowns and one interception. Uh, it's just it's so funny this year how some of the window dressing for, for Penn State. And I don't want to call it that because those wins matter. But this team gets to 10 wins. Drew Aller in the process has 25 plus total touchdowns and one or two turnovers on the entire regular season. It's just hard to, to imagine that you would get to this point and then feel like you're really concerned about where the offense is trending and you've already fired the offensive coordinator, but that's what it really is right now. It's, it's just an interesting juxtaposition to me, Daniel, because some of the numbers look pretty and even the win loss, as much as, as we're going to dwell and a lot of people are going to dwell on the Ohio state Michigan matchups, 10 wins is 10 wins. And you still value that at the power five level and yet here we are, and the central conversation before we get to some of the other stuff is what's going to happen at quarterback and what has happened at quarterback. And you take us over to Bo Prabula because it was a different journey once he got involved. Yeah, I, I think one thing to to go off of what, what you were just talking about with what the final numbers are going to look like, there's definitely an element of you, you have to kind of take the – you have to factor in the process and the results. Uh, you have to figure out how to weigh those differently where – you got these results, but how did you get them? What did it look like? Um, I think that when we really do the autopsy this offseason, that's probably something that we're going to look at a lot. But and we saw something different uh, from the Penn State offense today. Once Drew Aller went out, Bo Prevula came in. We had seen him a little bit earlier in the game in the first half. We had the Prevula package with both Aller and Prevula on the field at the same time. Um, I don't believe that player really did much. Um, when it happened, but then Pravila came in and it was the, the full-time Pravila package. And it was pretty much what we'd seen uh, when Pravila had yeah. gotten extended run. The difference was instead of in the fourth quarter of these games that are out of reach, he's in there in a one score game uh, in the, in the third quarter. And they're running like this. Um, I think that you, you do have to factor in how the Penn state defense was playing, how the Rutgers offense was playing 
I don't even though Gavin Wimsett had some really nice plays, especially in the, in the first half, felt like making plays with his legs and his arm. I was pretty impressed with him today. But at the same time, he didn't necessarily scare you. Like you didn't really have that feeling where it was kind of like, oh no, this guy can this guy can win the game. This could get out of hand. So I do feel like that that probably played into Penn State a little bit in terms of how they handled things and how they really, really leaned on this. I also felt like that they kind of just put the put the game in the hands of their offensive line and put the put the game in the hands of being physical, um, which is something that we haven't seen on a lot of occasions this year. Um, but Prabula came in. He did some really nice things with his legs. I mean, the, his first snap, he breaks off a 39-yard run, which ties Tank Smith for the longest run by a Penn State player this year. Um, and I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. we're talking about Tank Smith and Bo Perbula as the, the home run hitters uh, in the running game in, in late November. Um, but then I think that you look at what how Perbula did. I mean, he kept the defense honest with his arms, Nick or with his legs. Nick Singleton got a couple things going. Um, he broke off a couple nice runs. Katron Allen was Katron Allen again. Um, and you started to see things open up a little bit for that run game. Um, I think that if you're Penn State and you kind of look at this and move it forward, I think the big question is, all right, how do we get the run game to work like this without having a, you know, Prabula in there, without having that, making it an 11, 11 men you have to account for. Um, I'm sure that's something that is going to be looked at, at this offseason, but I just thought that Prabula allowed them in this type of game where you're basically trying to get out with the win, you have the lead. You're trying to survive. You don't need many fireworks. I thought that Prabula did a, a very nice job of just kind of doing what was asked of him. And again, isn't this very much how Michigan approached the second half last week here in Beaver Stadium? It was you, you, we don't fear the opposing offense. We don't. They don't scare us. We're not. We're not worried about playing that game with our defense with a one score game. And we're going to get our let our offensive line and our running game. Wear it down. It might take a few series, but they're going to break down the door. And we saw Penn State do it. And to their credit, um, we'll get to the offensive line because there were some interesting things there. Some other guys involved for extended work, especially in the second half, that maybe we were accustomed to or anticipating in this matchup, especially as close as it was. But let's talk about the other elements of the ground game. And, and by the way, if Bo Perbula is going to be your starter against Michigan State, I mean, Penn State's not going to have a choice. We're going to have to see some of the passing game. And if we don't, it, it's kind of a discredit, I think, to, to, to Bo Perbula as, as a quarterback, as a guy who's been very committed to sinking his teeth into the position, was recruited at the position. We talked about it as a recruit on this podcast and with him during his process that he could have been a Power 5 uh, prospect at other spots on the field, at the Power 5 level. Um, so I would like to, if he gets a chance to play extensively here and, 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 and it's kind of his show offensively, and I don't know that it will be, but I think it would do a favor to this offense or do a favor to, to Bo Perbula to at least give it a shot to, to get some balance to this thing. Um, but again, they're just trying to survive, maybe get to those 10 wins. And if, if they feel like the better way to do that is to go 85% run against Michigan State and make that work, then maybe they make that work. But how about the rest of the, the run game there? And Katron Allen, Nick Singleton, it was Allen's show early. He's the guy who got the start. Um, he did get a touchdown in this matchup, uh, two touchdowns actually. Um, and and along the way, he has really, in a in a weird moment for this offense, in a really frustrating moment for this offense in the last few weeks, 
four-week sample size now where he's getting a dozen-plus carries a game. He's over five yards per carry, 5.2 yards per carry now. He's at 313 rushing yards the last four games. It is a shared load situation. He was at 16 carries today. Nick Singleton at 11. Bo Prabula ends up popping up with eight carries. And then uh, Drew Aller had three carries for 28 yards. So still not getting the 25 carries that you maybe be curious what K. Tarn Allen could do with over the course of a matchup. But he showed up to work. He brought that authority. And again, he's a guy that will not really be denied by one defender. I think that Catron Allen is really the the main player who's been as advertised this season. I think it's taken him a little bit to get going, but these last four weeks, I think it's the the Catron Allen that we saw last year and what he's been able to do and, and how he's able to play. Um, and I think that that's been something that we've talked about that Penn State needs to find the guys that are going to show up on a weekly basis and and guys that you're going to get what you expect out of them, uh, which hasn't been the case. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to some of the wide receiver stuff, but you know, Keandre Lambert Smith was a short conversation again. tonight, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Omari Evans and Liam Clifford as your two wide receivers with catches. I mean, no one had catches. They had catch. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, you just, those are guys that week in and week out, you don't know what you're going to get out of your, uh, out of your wide receivers. I think Tyler Warren has maybe been the most consistent player this entire season, but that's your kind of one B tight end. Um, where can I say something about Tyler Warren before I forget to mention it? Yeah, four, four straight games, nineteen plus yard catch. I mean, this is a guy that we've kind of framed as doing it within like you know the, the nine to twelve yard range, and yeah. then getting tough yards after the catch, or doing it on like a three yard pass up by the goal line. He's showing some explosive traits to his package, and and right now you put together the highlight reel from what he's done as a blocker, from what he's done now downfield vertically, and certainly what he's done near the line of scrimmage as a receiver. This is a really balanced tight end that has come along in year four. Exactly, and he's someone that he's a fourth-year player, redshirt junior, walked for senior day, spent was spending a lot of time on the field after the game, so we'll have to, to wait and see, but I, I think that you look at Warren and I think he's really the only player from week one to week 11 that has, I think been consistent there, but that's, I'd, yeah, I'd say Olu, uh, if, we're, if we're talking offense at large, yeah. but uh, I mean, I would I'm say going say, I'm going skills like skill. Guys. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, and he is really the guy who's done it start to finish. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, but Katron Allen has kind of joined him now these last couple of weeks. And I think that that's been a, a good sign for the offense because you know, I mean, the tight ends, no matter how good he is, maybe at most, like you're giving your tight end eight targets, eight catches, something along those lines. That's not necessarily a, a position that is super high volume, whereas you can give Catron Allen the ball 16 times and, and get 69 yards from him. Um, so I think that seeing Catron Allen kind of round into that form, I think is really a positive for this offense because it's been tough kind of, I think there's been so many of these Fridays where, or these Thursday pods where we sit down and we're trying to forecast who's going to step up and we're kind of like, okay, maybe it's Nick Singleton this game. Maybe this is finally going to be Dante Cephas. Maybe Keandre Lambert Smith will get it here. Maybe Caden Saunders is going to spin something forward from a game. And it just kind of, it, it never happened. Um, but I think that if Katron Allen, if he's establishing a baseline for you and is doing that week in and week out, it just makes things just a little bit easier. And I think that he's probably relieved a little bit of pressure 
on this offense over the past month. We'll be right back on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Something this offense did really well with today was staying ahead of the chains, you know, and avoiding those third and long situations against Rutgers. Four for nine. Uh, now, they didn't have a ton of possessions, so that brings down your third down opportunities, but it just felt like they didn't find themselves in a lot of third down opportunities. And, and, and those numbers reflect it. And when they did, pretty good conversion rate comparatively to where they've been of late, which has not been in a good place on third downs. Um, but Catron Allen is a big part of that reason. I think late in the game, Bo Propula was another significant part of that reason. And then it felt like for three and a half quarters, Daniel, more the same story with Nick Singleton, more of, of, of man, how did Nick Singleton kind of miss that opportunity? Like, there's been chances there where, where it just feels like there's room for him to maneuver and go chase down yardage or chase down touchdowns. And for one reason or another, he just hasn't located them. Um, and you kind of combine that with, with just some of the issues of, of, of him being able to find space and just hasn't come together for one reason or the other. The last three games, as we said, hadn't reached even 10 yards on the ground. And that was the case uh, on a single rush. And that was the case through three and a half quarters, really. Then he goes 20 yards and he goes 12 yards. And man, to think that we would be like, you know, parsing through uh, Nick Singleton's carries last year to find a 20 yard gain and a 12 yard gain and spotlight it like this, it kind of shows where Nick Singleton has been production wise as a sophomore. But we got to cast a spotlight because there was a couple runs there where, and, and unfortunately, I, it looked like for a second he might have been banged up after that 20 yard run toward the sideline, a little slow to get up, but he returned 12 yard run. You really hope that he found something. And when you have an elite athlete like this who's proven it before and actually has the track record, we're not waiting on it. We're waiting on Drew Aller to produce at a Power 5 level like a five-star. We've already seen Nick Singleton produce at the Power 5 level like a five-star. He was the Big Ten freshman of the year last year. So when you're talking about something that's maybe a little mental involved into the whole as aspect, a moment like this, if you're J1 Slater, you – cling to this possession i think you hammer home what do you define what do we do right how do we keep it going early on because it's nick singleton week in detroit he's he's in line to get that spark that start in the rotation so i expect him to be the net first man up at running back against the spartans yeah i think that you i you know when you look at nick singleton and the running game when i'm watching a game i i try really hard not to be like 
oh, he should have hit that hole. He should have done this because, oh, uh, I don't know what the call is. As, as James Franklin would, would point out, you know, sometimes we don't know what the assignments are, what the call is, what all the details are. But I, I think there was one play in the first half today where it was pretty obvious that Nick Singleton made a wrong read. I think it was down near the goal line. And I felt like if he had just kept going to the right and followed Theo Johnson, he was probably going to make it into the end zone. Um, and it was maybe the, it was a time where I was kind of like, you know, think through the binoculars, I could see it. And I was just like, Oh, that was, that was really rough. Um, but I have up in front of me, I mean, the way that he closed the the game in the fourth quarter on that drive, 20 yards, nine yards, 12 yards, all of which went for first downs. And then he got stopped short of the goal line with a, a two yard run on uh, from, from the three. And I think that seeing that from Nick Singleton, I think is a really big positive. Maybe he was benefiting from Bo Perbula being in the game. Maybe he was benefiting from Katron Allen having really worn Rutgers down a little bit with what he was able to do. But I think that no matter what your qualifier is, I think the fact that we saw Nick Singleton doing these things, I think is a really, really big positive. He, he had a little bit of juice on a kickoff return. Um, I thought that that was, that's kind of been there kind of in the background a little bit this year. He had the two fifty yarders earlier. Um, and I, and then he had another nice one today, but seeing it in kind of the flow of the offense, I think was a really, really big positive. And so I think you look at it for Penn state, if you're Jaylon Sider and Ty Howell designing this offense moving forward, it's okay. How do we get this from Nick Singleton in the first quarter? What was working? How can we make this independent of Bo Prabula or Katron Allen? How can we, we channel that for, for Nick Singleton and, I'm really curious to see what that actually looks like because like you talked about, he's up next in the rotation. The way that that's worked is he'll probably get the first quarter, which means that he'll have the opportunity to to set the tone on maybe at least two drives, uh, depending on game flow. If it's uh, not, if it's a little different than it was today. Um, so what are we seeing from Nick Singleton early on? Um, it's, I think he's been kind of a, it's been an enigma a little bit this year in terms of what has actually been going on, why we're seeing this type of performance from him. But I thought we saw flashes at, at good points today. Um, so he's just got to do it again on Friday in Detroit. You mentioned, uh, the, did he benefit from Bill's presence? Yeah. No, I mean, yes, unequivocally he did. And and so did Katron Allen. And so did that ground game overall. And we knew that they would. James Franklin has told us repeatedly that when Bo Perbula is in the game, the defense has to just prepare for a different kind of threat. And they can't they can't get away with certain things. And in this case, Bo Perbula was able to, to outrun and, and outmuscle some Rutgers defenders in some key situations. He went, what, 30 plus yards in that first carry. And I think hindsight being 2020, and we're allowed to do it. He didn't play at all against Michigan or Ohio State. During all those frustrating offensive possessions that were <laughs> clanking and clunking around the field against Ohio State and Columbus and then in Beaver Stadium against Michigan last week, Mike Yersich didn't find the time or the, the motivation. And I'll put it on Mike Yersich, but it's it's the staff at large. You know, we know James Franklin's the head coach here, um, but you know, we know that it's something that they've been teasing for a while. And for it to not show up in the two biggest games of the year, and they were the two biggest games of the year, and in two games where your offense was mightily struggling, now that we've seen what it looks like with Bo Perbula on the field time and time again, 
I think that's a tough look for this staff. I think it's a real tough look. Yeah, I, I wrote about it in the, the rewind this week where you didn't see it at all against Ohio State and Michigan. You only really saw it against Maryland. And so it's kind of like, all right, like what was your goal uh, by deploying it then? Did you just want to take up like five minutes of practice time from Michigan or 10 minutes? And because if that's all you wanted to do, I think that that is just sort of overthinking things completely. Um, whereas I think that if you have something like that, you're going to, you have to use it. I think that keeping it theoretical and uh, trying to be like, all right, well, if we have the specter of this, that it's something that they'll be thinking about, it's going to be in the back of their head. It's they're going to prepare for it and then we're not going to show it. I think the problem with Penn state was that, all right, you didn't show that, but you didn't show anything else that was unique or interesting or, um, maybe even a little dangerous there. Um, I, it just really, really struck me as kind of a sort of almost like a, like, what was the point um, by the time we got to Ohio state and Michigan and, and the fact that we didn't see it. Um, but it, it does kind of raise some questions. I mean, I have been of the, I was of the mindset that if drew Aller is this quarterback that you think he is, and that we all believe he has the ceiling of, then you never take the ball out of his hands under any circumstance. But I think during that Ohio state game. And then again, against Michigan, it became clear that he's not that quarterback right now. And we saw a willingness from Mike Yersich to take the ball out of Drew's hands and put it in Keandre Lambert Smith's or Katron Allen's to throw the ball in, in different scenarios. So I think that that's something that in hindsight is just really, really baffling, especially when you see that it, it worked today, um, that it, was efficient it kept an offense on the field which is something that especially in that ohio state game was not happening at all um so I, that's one that i think uh i don't think we'll ever get an answer on why we didn't see it i know that james franklin said in the ohio state game that they were just going three and out too many times and he wanted to wait until they were in a rhythm to put it out there um, but i think that in the michigan game i think that stands out as the the bigger missed opportunity given what you knew about Aller, um, what you'd already seen from him, and what and how you saw this work against Maryland. The fact that you had just put it on film, um, and now you can build off of it a little bit. So that's one that, you know, we're going to be, that's another one for the autopsy that I think we're going to, we're going to come back to a couple times. Yeah, that's, it's, and, and it's not just something that, that James Franklin had mentioned, you know, the, the, using the two quarterbacks, not something that popped up in September. It's something that, that he was really emphasizing to us um, whenever the topic came up about Bo Perbula is, you know, since felt like March, you know, since they got back on the practice field and, and for it to set up. And, and you thought once they teased it in Maryland and really ran it up the goal line, of course, it's going to pop up against Michigan. It has to. Come on, you're looking for a spark anywhere. You're not getting it from your running back. You, you look for, and we saw Bo Perbula first play of this game. We go, he goes 39 yards, I think it was down, yep. down, and off to the races. Um, and that that really gave Penn State momentum that they never really relinquished along the way. Um, getting over to just to the offensive line briefly here, and again, we'll, we'll dive into a lot of this more in detail coming out of James Franklin's press conference on Monday when we sit down with Mark Brennan for our next podcast. But six yards uh, per rush, uh, they finish with. No sacks allowed on the day. Uh, obviously, there wasn't much passing involved after the third quarter. 
But you, you look at what this offensive line did today and you look at who was involved. It was a, a lot of Venga Ioane again and, and Salim Wormley and J.B. Nelson. But uh, Venga was the guy for, for the most part at guard during the final stretch of this game. I, I got to go back and check on that. But it felt like that. And I think that we were picking up on that possession by possession. And then Drew Shelton got extended run in the second half as they really found their way at right tackle. And we talked about and wrote about this week how important it's going to be to make sure he's getting his opportunities because he's going to be either your starting left tackle or your starting right tackle next year. We're not sure where he's going to be needed more and what the, the rest of the personnel things are going to dictate. But he played a lot. And when he was out there, this offensive line was able to get it done on the ground and, and wear down Rutgers. And as Katron Allen said, you could sense it as as the game wore on that that Penn State's uh, that that Rutgers defenders were getting testy and they knew that they were slipping away from them and and then Penn Penn State was able to pounce on that. Yeah, I, I think that seeing that those different combinations be able to be physical uh, to push push Rutgers back a little bit. You know, there was the one play where Bo Prabula got stopped on a on a fourth down sneak and it looked like the line got a good push. I think that something on, on that replay. I'll have to go back to watch it again, but it felt like to me that Bo Previla left his feet uh, a little bit early on that and, and wasn't able to completely drive through um, to, to get the, the yardage that he needed. But I think that you saw some, you, you didn't really notice when Drew Shelton was out there. You didn't really notice when Vanga Ioane was out there. Um, we saw Nick Dawkins out there at center too. And it was kind of the thing where things were functioning um, as they had been when, when the starters were out there. So I think that this offensive line, it's going to look a lot different next year. You've got a lot of guys who can move on. Um, and you've got a bunch of guys who are in different kind of areas of their career where, you know, Hunter Norzad out of eligibility, Olu Fashionu going to the NFL, and then Salim Wormley and Caden Wallace are 50 year guys who are kind of in that in between. Um, a little bit with deciding whether or not to stay, to go. Do you really want to be in college for six years? Do you want to figure out what's next? Um, it's an interesting spot. And so to see some of that depth in there on senior day at home, some younger players gives you a little bit of a, of a preview, I think, for mm -hmm. what this group could look like. And I think to see them perform well, uh, I think that's a, that's a big benefit. I think that this offensive line this year, has had a couple issues here and there. I think that we've seen it with some of the stunts that opposing teams have run to get free rushers coming up the middle. Uh, there's been some plays in the, like the short yardage plays this year have been, a, it feels like they've been a lot more difficult than last year, a little bit more of a struggle at times. Um, but there is some talent here. And uh, I think Penn State is going to have to, you know, Phil Troutline's going to have to like put the puzzle back together next year in a, very different way and we got a little bit of a look this today at what some of those pieces might be i think on, on an ideal afternoon for the offense and, and as we've covered on the show it was not an ideal day and then things happen um but you probably would have wanted to stack up more points have that, that better offensive efficiency to start this game and then been able to finish the game with some of the young pups out there on the offensive line you know javen williams is a guy i know they want to get more game opportunities for anthony donka at guard you know both of those players in year two next year could be in a position where you're counting on them to kind of be at the forefront of a position battle at those respective positions. And, and so because this game's hanging in the balance, it, it is what it is. Give Rutgers some credit. And, and we have to acknowledge Penn state's offense 
wasn't able to put this one away uh, until late. Um, so it, it, you didn't get a chance to get those guys out in the field. Does it happen against Michigan State? I don't know. But to your point, there's there's potentially a major changeover happening on the offensive front. You got a little bit of a look at some pieces that are going to be in place next year. Dawkins is one of them. Uh, but but uh, we'll, we'll find out about some of the other ones. Uh, Daniel, let's go to the defensive side of the football where I think we can go on some individual efforts but before acknowledging just a, a solid day for the defense. Although, again, I think Rutgers was able to move the ball uh, to their credit and, and um, more efficiently than we've seen Rutgers do against this particular uh, Penn State team uh, year after year after year and coming off a game in which they were shut out against Iowa. Um, you know, chalk that up to some success for Kirk Shiraka's game plan. Maybe chalk it up to, to some not awesome moments for the Penn State defense. But in individual performances, there's a few guys I think worth spotlighting. You got to start with Chop Robinson. We saw it early against Michigan before they decided not to throw the ball anymore and, and changed his kind of role and his factor in this in that matchup. Well, today he was just uh, he was a, a nasty nasty presence for Rutgers. He was everywhere. Uh, we got him after the game. I know he's feeling very confident in what he's able to accomplish. But five tackles on the day, two of them come behind the line of scrimmage. One's a sack and. In case anyone forgot the impact this guy can make since he left the second quarter against Ohio State, there's a big reminder, Daniel Gallon, of just what an impact 44 makes on the front end of this defense. That, that strip sack of Gavin Wimsett was just a very, very impressive individual play because you saw how quickly Chop got off the line and how quickly he was in the backfield. And you, it's one of those plays where you can just see it coming and you're kind of like, does he know like does he realize what's about to happen it reminded me a little bit of last year when uh curtis jacobs uh got in there and forced the fumble that jair brown returned for a touchdown where it's a guy who is just in the backfield immediately um to to make a play and that's the chop robinson that i think that we thought we were going to see for much of this year um having that injury against ohio state and getting sidelined for a couple games um, I think that this defense did miss him, um, but you know, I think that today was just such a good reminder of what he's able to do and just kind of a, a nice reminder of what happens when you have an edge rusher like that who is able to you know, really flip a game by himself, cause some havoc. He was doing it from both at both edges. Uh, it was just very, very cool to see that kind of performance from a, from a pass rusher today. And we know that he can rush from the interior as well, yeah. you know, based on some of the, the, the work he's done this year. Um, and I was having a conversation with you, I think it was before the game or may have been early in this game, just kind of where Chop Robinson stands right now, because it felt like a kind of a foregone conclusion that, yeah, he's a guy that he's going to go to the NFL because he's going to stack up a full season's work here. But, you know, things hit a bit of an abrupt change in a showcase game against Ohio State. Uh, he's not available for most of it. He misses a couple matchups, including you know, the, that, that trip back to Maryland, which would have been an interesting one for him. And then the way the Michigan game goes, it kind of limits what he can actually put out there and some of his best uh, you know, best traits that I think the NFL scouts are coveting with him. Um, and we get to this point, and he puts this performance up, and then you kind of say, well, a couple more games here, what can he produce? What do you think Chop Robinson is? And it's obviously a personal decision, and we don't know a lot of the other things that are going to go into that when he makes it. Uh, but it feels like if he were to come back, it's all still there for him. And, and, and selfishly, I know we would like to see him, him put together an entire season. You just wonder what that could look like and what it could mean in terms of going from, I don't know, maybe a fringe first rounder. I don't know where he is. I don't know where the industry analysts have. But if he can come and, and look like he did today, 
for an extended period of time as a senior, how much how much more could that change what a rookie contract might look like? Definitely. I, I think that he plays a premium position. And if he were to come back and put together the season that we think he's capable of, I mean, you'd certainly play his way um, into that first round, you know, maybe into the top half of the first round. Right. I know that there was a mock draft that came out on 24-7 Sports uh, late last week that had – Chop Robinson going in the top 15, I believe. So I, I think that well, there's hey, people- hey, if, if that's what the industry analysts are saying, if that's what the <laughs> NFL scouts, more importantly, are, are telling you when they send their feedback, Chop has been fun. Okay. That's great. <laughs> if, if that's already the case, that's awesome. I was thinking, and my thought still kind of is that, that he could end up in that stratosphere next year. But hey, if he's already there, then, then, you know, forget what I said. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, with NFL scouts, I mean, it's, it's can be kind of confusing sometimes because you know there's certain cases where the on-field production matters. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, sometimes the physical traits matter. Sometimes they don't. I think- away had zero sacks his final season here. Everyone knows that story. Well, first round pick. Exactly. So it's going to be curious to see. I, I think that there's a lot of these guys um, that Penn state has that are in that junior you know, third year class, even some of the, the fourth year redshirt junior guys that, the feedback that they get from the, from the NFL, from evaluators um, as they're trying to make their decision, the feedback they're getting from position coaches and James Franklin uh, is going to be really interesting to see how that shapes, you know, who stays, who goes. We talked about it after last season, where the fact that Penn state got a lot of these guys to come back who had eligibility remaining was kind of a coup for James Franklin you know, we're out there at the Rose Bowl and that whole week, it's all these different guys announcing they're coming back for another season. Um, is there going to be a similar feeling this year? Um, it, it's going to be, I'm very curious to see what the landscape looks like, but I, I do think that Chop Robinson coming into the season, I do think that I felt like that he was a surefire first rounder um, and like surefire to leave. But now at this point, I could maybe see it a little bit more. I mean, I'm personally of the mindset that if you have the chance to go get paid and, and make real money on a real contract, I know you can make a lot off of NIL, but there's a there's a little bit of a difference between that and being on that NFL contract and you know, playing for a second contract and you know, the chance to make truly life-changing money. Um, so I, I don't know. Chop Robinson, I think that he's going to be one that – in terms of the the things to monitor, you know, from the end of the Michigan State game to the bowl game that whole month, he's going to be someone that I think that we're all going to have our eyes on. It feels like that would be a very big roster win. You got one last year with Olu Fashionu, and, and then you had a few others that, that were yeah, maybe a, a little less splashy, but we thought maybe on the fence with the guys like Curtis Jacobs and Adiza Isaac. And I think it's proven that both of those guys are going to stand to gain off of coming back. Um, but yeah, it'll be curious to watch. Those are the kind of conversations that pop up here. Um, let, who do you think? Uh, and, and I'm just going to throw it to you I, I, without looking at the stat sheet, Daniel. Through 11 games now, one game left on the schedule. Who leads this Nittany Lions defense in total tackles now? Is it Kobe King? It is Kobe King, <laughs> a man who has played about 180 to 200 fewer snaps than guys like Abdul Carter and, and, and KJ Winston and Kalen King is his twin brother. Those guys have been mainstays. They've been out there every snap. And Curtis Jacobs, for the most part, has been as well. Love late a little bit less for him. Uh, Kobe King has pre- pretty much played 60 to 70% of the snaps as the other starting linebackers. That has changed lately. I spoke with Kobe after this game. 
I know his confidence is very high. I know he's very excited to go home to Detroit and, and play Michigan State in a, in a Black Friday showcase kind of setting. But we've got to acknowledge he's caught fire a bit. And James Franklin took some time in his opening statement to, to, to mention what he feels like Kobe King has accomplished this season. I know that folks were maybe looking for a little more fireworks for, from that middle linebacker position early in the season. I think you got really reliable play there and you got a strong, accountable, reactive play there. Now I think you're seeing some authority pop up with Kobe King, and that can change the way this linebacker core plays for the remainder of the season. And to me, makes me really curious about what the middle linebacker position can look like for this defense in 2024, because I think it can be at a different level than really it's been in quite some time, quite frankly, if Kobe King can build off the way he's playing right now. You look at what he did today, 10 tackles, five solo, a half tackle for loss, a quarterback hurry. That's pretty good for a, for a middle linebacker, um, especially making those plays that behind the line of scrimmage, um, because I think sometimes we see Kobe King do a lot of his work there in the second level. But I, I think that's something that you just brought up that we noticed the past couple of weeks when Penn State goes to nickel. Uh, they At the beginning of the year, Kobe King was going off and Daquan Hardy was coming on. Um, in recent weeks, Kobe King has been staying on and Curtis Jacobs has been going off. I know that some of it might have to do with playing these a little bit more run-heavy teams, um, you know, like a Rutgers, like a Michigan. But I, I think that it also shows that Penn State has a little bit more confidence in Kobe King to be—they have the confidence in him to be able to play in space a little bit, um, you know, to play against those types of sets, which is something that I think wasn't necessarily maybe his reputation or our expectation of him coming into the year. But I mean, he's someone that since he got on campus, we obviously have been hearing about Kalen King since day one. Um, that would kind of bring along Kobe a little bit into some of the conversations. But I, I think the one thing that we heard about him was kind of team captain material. Yeah. I think that's something that's been his intangibles have been talked about a lot since he first got here. And when you look at a middle linebacker and, and what you're supposed to do, I think that that's something that you want and I think that maybe it, it took him a little bit longer to get there than maybe his brother. But I think that Kobe King has put himself in a position to be a really key player uh, on, on this defense at, at linebacker. Um, I think that's really cool to, to see that kind of development uh, for him over, over the course of this these three years he's been on campus. And his physical development is so he's totally changed his diet. He's a guy that they had to kind of, they didn't have a big body fat percentage. So they had to kind of find new ways to squeeze uh, everything out of him. I mean, this is a guy who, you, 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 I mean, I was speaking with him after post game and he, there's really no more room on that frame. And, and it's just a different build than his brother, Kalen King, who's, you know, that, that kind of wire, more wiry built cornerback. But uh, Kobe King goes home on a high note right now. I'm really curious to see how he finishes out the regular season. Um, and, and how we can build off this. And, and, and number two on the team in tackles now is K.J. Winston. He put together another very productive game. He had his first career interception. I know you spoke with him. And Johnny Dixon at cornerback, while, while we're speaking about the defensive secondary, he comes crashing through for another sack. And if you've seen that before, it's because you have. He has four sacks on the season now. That leads all cornerbacks across the uh, across the country at the FBS level. He already led all cornerbacks across the country through 10 games. He tacks on another today. And you go back to last season, that's seven sacks across the last couple of years. Terry Smith said, folks, Johnny Dixon's going to make himself some money this year. He told us back in September that Johnny Dixon is an NFL prospect on the rise. 
this guy does a lot of things and he can play a lot of different roles. I think at the next level, his stock is going up. Oh, for sure. And you think about the last year, I think we were maybe into October and Johnny Dixon was still leading the team in sacks. We were still waiting for guys like Chop Robinson and Adisa Isaac to really get going. Um, and, and so I, I think that versatility for him has been really, really good. And I, I think it was kind of cool today to see him alter things throughout the game. He had a, a play early in the game where he rushed off the edge, hesitated a little bit uh, against Wimsett, and it let Wimsett get upfield, get by him um, for a gain. Uh, the second time, this time with the sack, we saw him no hesitation, just went straight through, got there, got him onto the ground. Um, so to, to see that, uh, you know, kind of progression throughout the game, I, I think that it shows the type of player that Johnny Dixon is. He's someone that um, d- didn't have the same reputation as Kalen King coming into the year. He's not like Daquan Hardy where he's been here for five years and everyone knows his story because James Franklin and Terry Smith tell it all the time. I think that Johnny Dixon was a little bit more under the radar as the transfer from South Carolina. And I think that when Penn State goes into the transfer portal, he's going to be a guy that they point to, um, especially when they're looking at younger players after their first and second seasons. Like, look at what Johnny Dixon did. You know, he came, you know, had a bit role in his first year and then did more and more over those next two years made himself uh, a lot of money. Uh, and then KJ Winston, uh, it was pretty cool talking to him after the game because he was genuinely excited about that interception that he said that he couldn't believe it when he he looked down in his hands and, and saw that he had the ball. Um, and he, he talked about it where he read the play that he figured out a tell from the first half from Gavin, Gavin Wimsett and the wide receiver. Um, and he knew that there was going to be a blitz he knew that the wide receiver was going to be hot. He knew where the ball was going to go and when it was going to happen. And uh, I didn't think it was a particularly good throw by Wimsett, but KJ Winston was there and made a really nice play to reel in that diving interception. You know, he's a guy that in the spring, the guys were that players were saying that he's a potential all American. Um, and we saw him really, really lock down that starting spot next to Jalen Reed. Um, you know, neither of them have really come off the field this week. So this year, and I think that's pretty big, uh, for, for KJ Winston moving forward. Um, and then I asked Keaton Ellis about, uh, after the game about KJ Winston getting that interception and Keaton Ellis said that he was going crazy on the sideline, that he thought it was just the coolest thing to see KJ make that play because they know the type of player he is. They know the type of work that he puts in and now he's getting rewarded for it. Um, and Keaton was like, you know, I remember what my first one was like, and he knows it's a really, really special moment. And I think that he was really happy that he got to witness that today on the field. We'll talk more about a uh, big picture of where this defense is through 11 games on Monday's episode, but let's finish with uh, some uh, Alex Falcons appreciation uh, segment. <laughs> I feel like it's a, it's a weekly spot on the post game podcast, win or lose. He's now 16 of 19 on the season. That's 84% on field goals. And, He's putting together one of the most impressive seasons for any place kicker in Penn State history. And this is coming off a of game one where we saw the place kicker benched when it was the prevalent talk of conversation about potential concerns for this team. It's way down that list now, Daniel. And Alex Falcons, who is done with the eligibility, there's no chance he's coming back in 2024. So that is going to be an interesting situation for Penn State at place kicker, but continues to get it done. 49 yarder. And it was one where if he misses that, 
the Beaver Stadium crowd turns on Franklin again, potentially, because it was a fourth and one situation. It was following a, a, a spot where you go for it on fourth and short at, at the four yard line. And then you get a fourth and one spot there uh, right on the edge of, of territory where you, you consider it. They go to Falcons. He delivers as he has time and time again. And I know you caught up with him briefly after the game as well. Yeah, he he said that this was kind of what what he came to Penn State for to be able to deliver in these types of moments. And he felt that you know, to have that opportunity on his own senior day uh, was was really, really big for him. I, I think that he was definitely one of the more underrated additions coming out of the portal. When you think back to December, when he announced his commitment to come here, you knew what Penn State already had on the roster. You knew that Sanders Sahidak was there. Um, but at the same time, you knew that the specialist was something that James Franklin was really, really going to pay attention to and really, really try to put together the the right group that could have success there. And I think they really did hit a home run with Alex Falcons and he spin things forward a little bit. And if you have to go portal shopping for specialists again, you can say, Hey, look, we had a 66, we had a career 66% field goal kicker from the Ivy league come in. He's an 84% kicker. Now we let him take kicks in big spots. He delivered, you know, if you can come in and, and you can contribute, we're going to put you out there. Um, so I, I think it's pretty cool for him. Uh, Falcon said that one of his, you know, that a group of his best friends from Oklahoma, where he's from, were at the game. Um, and, you know, for them to see him, you know, kick in Beaver stadium, he said it was a really, really special moment for him. And I think that, He's another guy that his experience at Penn State, I think, has maybe set him up for a future that might not necessarily have been on the table or as much on the table a year ago. Overshadowed by Falcons, but continuing to get it done. Uh, Riley Thompson, he had, he had a mm-hmm. couple big punts today, a uh, 52-yarder. Uh, and then I think the, the other was a 48-yarder, or, or I'm sorry, 56-yarder and a 48-yarder. The 56 one was one they, they needed. They needed yeah. some, some breathing room out of their own end zone, and he delivered it. Uh, so he didn't really – fortunately for Penn State, they didn't have to turn to the punter as much as they have in some of these recent Big Ten matchups. Uh, and, and Riley Thompson, though, when called upon, again, getting it done. He's a guy that we're a little bit more murky right now. Uh, he's an international journey to, to Penn State. So we're starting – he played some Australian uh, rugby. So we got a little bit to figure out with him moving ahead. Finishing out here, Daniel, with, with something that's a little bit beyond the box score, certainly beyond the box score, is the emotions that went into this. And you're always wondering where does the motivation come from this week, particularly when you see one of the primary members of your program get the boot. Uh, that's going to be jarring for everybody. And it sounds like the focal point, at least for a percentage of this locker room, a significant one, was rallying around James Franklin, maybe being a little bit pissed off about some of the things they heard said about their head coach, whether that was in person while they exited Beaver Stadium last week or they went over to, to Twitter and took a peek at that firestorm. Whatever they did, it seemed like they found motivation. Theo Johnson in particular during postgame, a team captain, an emotionally charged player for this team, stepped up and said some some really strong words and appreciation of his head coach in front of the team. Uh, led to some emotions from the head coach, but what we're told from, from some people who were in that room. But 
overall, uh, I don't know, it, it, one of those late season galvanizing kind of things, whatever you want to talk to when you're trying to, to finish strong and build toward 2024. And, and James Franklin certainly wasn't an easy week for him, but as he keeps telling us, he said it a few times in the last couple of days, uh, you know, he gets paid if, to have this responsibility. This is ultimately everything under his roof is his responsibility seems like some players noticed that that the, maybe the, the things were piling on those shoulders and they wanted to, to pat him on the back just a bit. Yeah, J James Franklin was asked about the, the culture of this team, and you know, he said that in the locker room, he said that he wished we could have been in there to hear some of the guys talk, and he mentioned Devon Ellis and, uh, and Theo Johnson um, as two guys who talked, and it, Franklin didn't give really any details on it. And then the players come out and we start asking them and you start hearing from all these different guys about what they were saying. And it sounded like Theo Johnson got up and had a lot to say about James Franklin and, and, and talking to Theo after the game, he kind of framed it as James Franklin does so much for them. Um, I think that one of the phrases that he used was that James Franklin protects them um, and that he is the one, and we see it too from what James Franklin does where he comes out to those press conferences and, um, you know, he won't throw players under the bus. You know, he you know, won't single out guys individually, publicly, um, you know, and he talks about he's talked to us about, you know, wanting to keep that locker room together, keep it intact. Um, and I think that for Theo Johnson, this was kind of his way of of thanking him for that um, and, and showing his appreciation. Um, and I think Theo said that it, it's not something that you hear often too, is that it's not often you hear about players really thanking their coach like this. It's always the, you know, the coach thanking the players and, um, and that sort of emotion. And he said that he caught James Franklin by surprise a little bit um, and that it was something that the coach really, really appreciated. Um, and I think that we've talked a lot about what this leadership was going to look like this year, what kind of leaders were going to be there. Um, and I think that this was a team that, I think partly because you didn't have necessarily the Sean Clifford and Jair Brown types guys that are really kind of beacons in there. I, I think that this team probably was maybe centered on James Franklin a little bit more um, than maybe last year's team was at kind of their, as kind of their tone setter and, and person that they look to, to, to really set things up. And, um, you know, I think that this was Theo Johnson's way of, of saying thank you on his senior day. Um, Theo Johnson said that his his moment coming out of the tunnel and you know being there with James Franklin and his family was really really special to him. Um, he said that he still has to make a decision after and he's going to wait until after the Michigan State game to really consider that he can come back for the fifth year next year. Um, but you know I think that it was it was kind of cool. It was something different to hear. You know, yeah. Senior day, it's always emotional. Um, stories kind of always pop up. Uh, in, in different ways. And this was a, a pretty unique one today. I think, I think there's so many weeks and there's so many instances where James Franklin brings some outside noise purposely inside the building to fire up his guys. And I think his guys got fired up by the noise that was being directed at him this time. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a kind of a re role reversal. And I don't know if James Franklin sensed that during the week. And I'm sure he does now. This isn't just something that popped up on Theo Johnson's mind in post game. This is something that was clearly 
you know, brewing within this team uh, over the course of the week. And you can understand why it might be when your, your leader and the guy who many of them consider to be a secondary father figure in their lives is being publicly questioned and called out and maybe saying he should be fired, depending on where you're getting your news from, uh, you know, that, that you can understand why it might be a galvanizing moment. I think uh, we'll see if it carries forward. But right now, that's what this end of the season, once you pick up that second loss, it's all about Where's your trajectory as a program? That's that's all I'm at. Once you're out of the college football playoff and championships are off the table and all that thing, to me, it's all about where is the trajectory of your program? And that starts with the spearhead, your leader. And how does that go all the way down, trickle down to the culture of your locker room? James Franklin sounded very confident about it based on what we heard from the players. Kobe King echoed a lot of what Theo Johnson said with James Franklin. Um, it's in a good place. Uh, but you know, you got to get through this Michigan state matchup, I think, and catch your breath a little bit and let everybody kind of prepare for what we expect to be a marquee matchup if they get to 10 and two, but Daniel, they get to nine and two first, uh, it's 27 to six victory over Rutgers. As we just covered a lot of layers to this one, anything to, to throw on the table before we say goodbye? No, I mean, I think kind of going back to what I said at the top of the show, you think back you know, 12 weeks ago, we're podcasting at 4 a.m. after the uh, after the West Virginia game. And I remember there was something that I wanted to be my closing thought, but I couldn't get it because it was so late. And then I remembered it, obviously, the next day when I woke up. But after that game, Drew Aller was asked something about his you know, emotions or thoughts on the game. And you know, he made the point that you only get so many of these. Uh, games you know football is different than all these other sports where in college you're only guaranteed 12 which is not very many uh, in the grand scheme of things when you factor in the proportion of work that they put in um and i i remember thinking about that that night and being like all right like you know there's a lot of weeks ahead but this could go pretty fast and i think that wrapping up tonight leaving beaver stadium it was kind of like yeah this did go by pretty fast uh it's a it was a roller coaster there's still a couple more uh, rises and, and drops coming on it, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're 11 weeks into this and uh, Penn State's nine and two. And it really does almost feel like yesterday it was the West Virginia game and just kind of how this game works. I don't know if I say this every single year come like Thanksgiving time, but this sincerely felt like the fastest. Uh, it, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going back to the opener. Thinking back to that open scrimmage that we got to go out to on the practice fields in, in, in early August, and we were like, oh, my gosh, we're going to watch Drew Aller go against the defense finally. And like just the anticipation of getting to peel back the curtain a little bit on the Penn State football team and what we thought it might look like. And now where we are what, four and a, four months later, four and a half months later, um, and, and, and I'm reminded every year, and especially on a senior day, these teams, they change so fast. You, you start to get a read on a team, and this one's been tough to get a read on in a lot of ways, but you start to get a feel for the team. You start to get a sense for where the culture is, and all of a sudden it's time for 25 guys to move on and it's time to bring in 20 new freshmen and six new transfer portal guys and and try to do it all again. And, and, and you're moving around the staff, and it's just every single team is so different. And hey, we'll give this team another 120 minutes to, to, to show us what they're all about. Uh, they got the Michigan State matchup on, on Black Friday. 
We're going to come to you with, with an episode Monday and Tuesday this upcoming week, and then we won't be back with you until Friday night after that Michigan State matchup. And then we wait for a bowl destination. That'll come in early December when we'll know what Penn State's doing for game number 13. For now, after game number 11, on behalf of Daniel Gallen, I'm Tyler Donahue. This has been the Lions 24-7 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to catch out all of our post-game coverage and coverage into game week number 12 at lions247.com.